Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 13, Electra, A Touch of Realism. Last time, we travelled to the troubled world of Medea, where Euripides took a violent and dark tale and tried to present it as an argument for the better treatment of women in society. A few years prior to presenting that play, he tackled the story of Electra, which you'll be familiar with from The Libation Bearers, part two of Aeschylus's Oresteia, that I reviewed in episode six of the podcast. In this episode, there'll be a fair bit of comparing and contrasting of the two plays, so if you feel the need for a refresher on the Aeschylus version, please feel free to pause here and take a look back there now. The Euripides version of this story opens some years after the death of Agamemnon. The setting is the outside of a peasant's hut at the start of a day. We hear from the peasant and then from Electra that they're married. They recount how that once suitors began to ask for Electra's hand in marriage, Aegisthus had become fearful that any marriage alliance and offspring of hers might threaten his position, and he was minded to have her killed. But Clytemnestra intervened and persuaded him that she could be married off to a lowly peasant of no consequence, so that any children could not cause them any problems. Electra says that her husband is a good man and has refrained from consummating the marriage but it's unclear if this is out of respect for Electra or fear of her relations. This has left Electra not only virginal, but frustrated and sexually repressed. Coupled with her lingering grief for her father and the still fierce hatred she bears for her mother, Electra finds herself in a very dark place. She appreciates her husband's kindness, but speaking to the chorus who are playing the women of Argive, she laments her change in circumstances and the misfortune of her life. This is no peasant idyll for her. She misses the life in the palace and its comforts. Resigning herself to the day's chores, she exits to collect water. Orestes, Electra's brother, enters, having secretly returned from the exile placed on him by Clytemnestra and Aegisthus. He's been living with the king of Phocus and is accompanied by the king's son and his friend Pylades. Orestes has secretly visited his father's tomb the previous night and now seeks out his sister. He sees Electra returning with a pitcher of water and mistakes her for a serving woman. In exchanges with the chorus, she reveals her identity, but Orestes does not yet reveal himself to her, but pretends to be a friend of her brother and uses the ruse to test her loyalty to him and the memory of their father. His timidity and uncertainty is contrasted with Electra's forthright nature as she reveals that she wishes to avenge her father's death and see her brother again. Just then, an old retainer enters and recognises Orestes from a scar on his forehead, a childhood injury, and his true identity is revealed. The siblings immediately begin to plot revenge in earnest, and a plan comes together as the servant reveals that Aegisthus is away from the palace, preparing a bull for sacrifice. Orestes exits to confront him. For her part in the plan, Electra sends a message to her mother, saying that she has given birth to a male child ten days ago, knowing that this will cause her to come and visit and perform the birth rituals that are expected of her. A messenger arrives, and describes how Orestes approached Aegisthus as a stranger and gained his confidence. After he had been offered hospitality in the correct manner, and most of the servants had been sent off, Orestes had set upon Aegisthus while he was engaged with preparing the sacrifice, and stabbed him in the back, 
cleaving him open to the spine and shattering the bone. Orestes and Pylades return with the body of Aegisthus, and Electra gloats over it, relishing the suffering of her father's killer. Orestes begins to doubt that they should kill their mother, but Electra convinces him it's the only way to properly complete their revenge for their father. Orestes fearfully withdraws to the hut to await his mother. Clytemnestra arrives and explains quite persuasively why she had such hatred for Agamemnon, who had, after all, commanded the sacrifice of their unsuspecting daughter, and then returned to Argos openly with his concubine Cassandra. She says, Had he slain her to save his city from capture, or to benefit his house, or to preserve his other children, a sacrifice of one for many, I could have pardoned him. But as it was, his reasons for murdering my child were these the wantonness of Helen and her husband's folly in not punishing her. Still, wronged as I was, my rage had not burst forth for this. Nor would I have slain my lord had he not returned to me with that frenzied maiden and made her his mistress, keeping at once two brides beneath the same roof. Electra is unmoved and persuades her mother to come to the hut where Orestes lies in wait for her. Offstage, we hear Clytemnestra's death cries, and then hear that as Orestes hesitated, it was Electra who put her hand on his, gripped the sword hilt, and drove the blade into her mother's throat. Brother and sister are suddenly filled with grief and guilt, as two figures appear above. They are Clytemnestra's semi-divine brothers, Castor and Polydeusis. They say that Clytemnestra received just punishment, but that matricide was nevertheless a shameful act, and to atone, the siblings must follow a new life path. Their solution is that Orestes must leave Argos. He will be pursued by the Furies until he arrives in Athens for proper trial, where he'll be acquitted and will be able to live out his life in Arcadia. Electra must marry Polynices. The siblings accept the judgment, embrace, and go to their individual designated lives. The play is not noted for any dramatic innovations, but one significant change is that the use of the chorus is very light. We saw in the later work Medea how Euripides struggled to find effective use for the chorus, and that's further evidenced here. It's another effect of the more realistic work he was producing. In this format, there isn't the same need for the chorus, and he has to invent reasons for their inclusion. As such, they're used less to comment or advance the action and more to express his ideas and suggest their application outside of the confines of the play. However, the play is noted for its fine poetry. Some argue it's Euripides at his best in this respect. At the very opening, Electra's first lines are a good example. O sable knight, knight of the garden stars, Beneath your cover I go to fetch water from the brook with my pitcher poised upon my head, not indeed because I am forced to this necessity, but that to the gods I must display the affronts Aegisthus puts upon me, and to the wide firmament pour out my lamentation to my father. For my own mother, the baleful daughter of Tyndarus, has cast me out from her house to gratify her lord. For since she has borne no other children to Aegisthus, she puts me and Orestes, on one side at home. It's poetic, but to the point and advances the drama. Also, the language serves to imply the self-demeaning character that Electra displays is an act, and that she is at heart still a royal princess who keenly feels the wrongs done to her. It's nuances like this that attract the admirers of Euripides.
As we're familiar with the Aeschylus version of the story, we can easily see that there are some significant differences in this version, the first of which is the setting. Rather than being in the steps of a royal palace, we are outside a peasant's hut. We are, of course, still in the context of the play being presented at the Dionysia, in the temple complex, and with the same Skeena and very limited, if any, suggestion of location. But, as we've seen before, the scene is set with the language. After just a few lines to cover the backstory of the return of Agamemnon from Troy, through to his marriage to Electra, the peasant makes the position clear. Aegisthus gave Electra to me in marriage, whose ancestors were citizens of Mycenae. It's not that I blame myself for this. My family were noble enough, though certainly impoverished, and so my good birth suffers. By making for her this weak alliance, he thought that he would have little to fear. We are no longer overtly in the realm of kings and gods. Euripides brings the action down to the level of the common man and makes Electra part of that by this simple opening. The peasant is shown as a noble person and, as things transpire, is the kindest and noblest character in the entire play. It's worth noting here that Electra's name is derived from the Greek for unmarried and her continued state of maidenhood is a convenient plot device for the resolution of the play. The nobility of the peasant is a fact that is recognised by Orestes slightly later when he says I have seen how the son of a noble sire can prove himself a worthless knave and how virtuous children can spring from evil parents. Likewise, dearth of spirit in a rich man and a mighty soul in a poor man's frame. But by what standard shall we rightly judge these things? By wealth? No, that's an evil test. By poverty then? No, poverty only teaches a man to play the villain out of necessity. Should I turn to martial prowess? But who could pronounce who is a valiant man merely by the look of his spear? It is better to leave these matters to themselves without troubling, for here is a man of no account in Argos, with no family reputation to boost, one of the common herd, and yet proved a hero. A truce to your folly, you self-deceivers, swollen with idle fancies. Learn to judge if a man is noble by his words and by his deeds. These are the men who rule both states and families well, while those men devoid of intellect are but figureheads in the marketplace. The strong man does not await the battle shock any more than the weak, for this depends on natural courage. This passage also illustrates, as we saw in Medea, how Euripides was perfectly capable of wandering into the didactic, given the opportunity to express his beliefs. He's fighting the corner for the common man here, showing his radical mindset and populist attitude. Praising a peasant so fulsomely, and comparing his lowly state favourably to those of a more elevated families, was not without risk. The front rows of the Theatron would have been lined with the city VIPs, who no doubt saw the finger being pointed at them, and maybe felt their conscience pricked. Euripides does, after all, suggest that some of them are devoid of intellect. Orestes is presented as a much more timid character than in the Aeschylus version. He only visits the tomb at night and is cautious in presenting himself to his sister. It's a more realistic and credible version of the character and again shows Euripides wanting to take the audience away from the, as he would see it, overblown and pompous and unrealistic setting of the previous versions. One of the most obvious points of comparison with the other versions is the recognition scene between brother and sister and here Euripides cannot resist mocking the Aeschylus version in particular. 
You'll remember that in The Libation Bearers, the recognition scene comes about through the lock of hair and footprint that Orestes has left near the tomb of Agamemnon. In this version, Electra explicitly ridicules any use of such items for recognition. Of the lock of hair found at the tomb, she says, How should our hair correspond? His is the hair of a gallant youth, trained up in manly sports. Mine, a woman's curled and combed. No, that's a hopeless clue. Besides, you could find many whose hair is of the same colour, albeit not sprung from the same blood. No, maybe it's some stranger who cut off his hair in pity at the tomb. And of the idea that a footprint could be a useful clue. How should the foot make an impression on stony ground? And if it did, the foot of a brother and a sister would not be the same in size, for a man's is larger. The ridicule is cutting in its simplicity. When the recognition of Orestes does come by the scar on his brow, it's not only realistically possible, as the scar came from a childhood injury, we're told, when Orestes chased a fawn, but it's also a mock heroic parody of the return of Odysseus to Argos when he's recognised by his childhood nurse because of a scar on his thigh. In Aristotle's comment on the play, he says the recognition scene is just right, comparing it specifically to the Sophocles version, which he thought too long. His liking, I think, is founded in the new realism through the simple and direct language that Euripides puts on the scene. Once properly reunited, Electra becomes the driving force. Orestes is nervous and unsure of the actions that he should take, but Electra goads him until they are presented with the information about Aegisthus that seems to give them a good opportunity to put a plan into action. The killing of Aegisthus is described in bloody detail, and Euripides emphasises that Aegisthus had given Orestes, as a stranger, hospitality, and that Orestes had killed him from behind with a devastating sword thrust. The intention is clearly to shock the audience as they hear of the spine-splitting blow, and to make Orestes appear unheroic in the manner of the deed. Not only was Aegisthus killed from behind, but while he was engaged with holy sacrifice. So, we're left in no doubt as to the inherent weakness of Orestes' character shown through his unheroic behaviour. The character of Clytemnestra is also quite a bit different from the earlier versions. She's regretful of her past actions, which is something we didn't see in the bold Aeschylus version or in the hateful mother conjured up by Sophocles. Both her visit to Electra and her regret at her actions appears to be genuine. Time, we feel, has moved on for her, and she now has some perspective on the events. It's something lacking in her daughter. She says of Iphigenia and Agamemnon, Women maybe are given to folly, I do not deny it. This granted, when a husband goes astray and sets aside his own true wife, she perhaps would follow his example and find another love, and then in our case hot abuse is hurt, while the men, who are to blame for this, escape without a word. Again, suppose Menelaus had been secretly snatched from his home. Should I have had to kill Orestes to save Menelaus, my sister's husband? How would your father have endured this? Was he then to escape death for slaying what was mine, while I was to suffer at his hands? I slew him, turning as my only course to his enemies. For which of all your father's friends would have joined me in his murder? Speak all that is in your heart, and prove against me with all free speech that your father's death was not deserved. Once again, Euripides takes the opportunity to rail to his audience, this time on the plight of women generally, 
pointing out the difference in the way society treats men and women. He sandwiches this message between the passage specific to Clytemnestra and Agamemnon, perhaps trying to soften the polemic a little. Electra is unmoved and takes the traditional view. Justly urged, but your justice is not free from shame. For in all things every woman of sense should yield to her husband. Whoever thinks otherwise does not come within the scope of what I say. Much as this may be difficult for us to hear with our modern sensibilities on the rights of women, it probably played very differently with the contemporary audience. To them, the justness of revenge and the place of women in society would have made Electra's position seem much more reasonable. It was commonly held views like this that Euripides was battling against. I wonder if the audience at the first presentation enjoyed the near melodrama of the play. With the gory killings, the pleading of Clytemnestra for her life, as reported by her children, and the indulgence of Electra, who seems to revel in her misfortune and humiliation, it could certainly be pulled towards the emotional. But that somewhat detracts from both the universality of the play and the message of the more didactic parts. Euripides may have been playing with the traditional forms to see how far he could take them, but it's not always successful. As we saw in Medea, and to some extent in this case, tragedy moves towards, if not into, melodrama. In this case, I think it's the coolness of Electra that serves to hold the emotional back. She doesn't have the emotional intensity of Medea, and that coolness tempers the tendency to melodrama. Another problematic thing in the play is that sometimes Euripides just tries to cram too much in and his message becomes confused. Whether that was intentional or not, and you'll remember that we think his ambiguities were to a large degree intentional, it's a difficulty in production. For example, we can say that Aeschylus views the matricide of Clytemnestra as a religious moralist and Sophocles treated it for the pure drama of the moment. But Euripides shows both his humanism and his indignation in the act. Not only does he portray it as a heinous crime through the violence of the description of it and the attitude of Electra and Orestes towards it, but he questions the very nature of the religion and society that would approve such actions. It's complexity that has not been seen before and probably left his original audience confused as to his intentions. The described killing of Clytemnestra is effectively the last act of the play and its dramatic high point. Her reasoning and Electra's cold reaction to it may have swung the sympathies of the audience back in Clytemnestra's direction, but even if not, the description of the manner of the murder is still shocking. Some scholars would prefer to see the play end here, with the revenge drama completed and Orestes suffering a fit of revulsion at the murder. But instead, we have a long tale with a much criticised ending, where all is neatly resolved by the appearance of the gods, who dish out their instructions on the fate of the siblings. Their ruling, and it's difficult to refer to such leniency as a punishment, seems to bear no relation to their actions. However, there is one reading of the play that can be said to save the ending. The two demigods criticise Apollo quite openly. They point out that subtly he has had a driving hand throughout the play. Early on, Orestes says that he recently arrived from Delphi, making the implicit connection that he'd been to see the oracle of Apollo there, and we can infer that Apollo has said that the time is right and he's sent him on the mission of revenge. But in the end, Euripides has the demigods say to Orestes, The oracle gave you no great proof of his wisdom, 
You must have this matter tried in Athens, and if equal votes are given, they shall save you from death in that decision, for Apollo will take the blame upon himself, since it was his oracle that advised your mother's murder. And this shall be the law for all posterity. In every trial the accused shall win his case if the votes are equal. Then shall these dread goddesses, stricken with grief at this, vanish into a cleft of the earth close to the hill, revered by man, henceforward a place for holy oracles. So we have explicit criticism of the gods by Euripides, who has shown that Apollo has driven the characters to their actions and maintained the old solutions of revenge and murder, whereas Athens offers a better way of justice based on human judgment. With this reading, the end is not so benign as it might first seem, and the polemic is fierce once the subtleties of the language are unpicked. This probably was the one time that Euripides could get away with such sentiments. At the time the play was first presented, Delphi had just aligned itself to Sparta, so feelings about Apollo and his oracle were running high in the city, and Euripides, it seems, was not shy in making good use of that for his own ends. Throughout the play, Electra remains central, but fails to attract much sympathy. It seems to me that this is where realism becomes a double-edged sword for the dramatist. Electra is a realistic portrait of a woman driven in her obsession of revenge, and we can appreciate that that revenge was forged from rejection, loneliness, childlessness, and the cruelty of her own mother. The obsession becomes everything to her, and we can believe that, but then we have to accept that she can instigate and then carry out the deed herself, and that's much harder to accept. Where we can admire Medea for her passion and sympathise with her for the hurt done to her, it's somehow harder to feel this for Electra. Mostly, this comes down to the matricide, which is outside of the borders of realism for the vast majority of viewers. But, I hear you say, so is the infanticide perpetrated by Medea, and I agree. But in that play, we have Medea established as an outsider and a sorceress. She is, in that sense, supernatural and we can therefore make some exceptions for her actions outside of the context of normal behaviours. Electra does not have that way out because she is that bit more realistic, which is an achievement for Euripides, but also gives him the problem of lack of empathy with his lead character. This isn't such an issue if we see the play as more polemic than family drama, and then I think we also have to think about the audience expectation. Were the Greek audience looking to be empathetic with the characters in a play in the same way that we do? They were used to the retelling of myths that sought to detach the characters from the audience by setting and language, and by so doing provide heightened dramatic moments, where the supernatural and incredible events were not a significant problem. I think, even at this very early stage, we can see the tug within theatre between the desire to entertain and the desire to teach between prompting an emotional response and provoking thought. And that's gone on ever since. This is not to say that Euripides was not looking for a cathartic response. I think he absolutely was. But he wanted that response to result in deeper thought and action for social change. Unfortunately for him, where we have records of the riots at performances of his plays, it seems that they were against his message rather than for it. It's with Electra and Orestes that we really begin to see character matters. 
In the realm of realism, if your protagonist cannot garner the sympathies of the audience, then it's an uphill struggle for an audience to really like them and therefore fully invest in the play and its meaning and message. This, I think, is the heart of the problem with this play. Electra is so obsessed, so driven by her hatred of her mother and idealisation of her father, that other traits are pushed to the background. She is prone to histrionics and wallowing in self-pity, but none of that energy converts into any sort of appeal. Medea is a very physical character where we have no problem seeing why she was so attractive to Jason, but Electra has none of this attraction. And we can't fall back on Orestes either, who is weak, indecisive and in the end irresolute. And to bring that back to the reaction of the original audience, the fact that Orestes could not deliver the killing blow without his sister's help would have lost him any final slip of sympathy that the audience may still have had. For a play with very little satisfying resolution, Electra may surprisingly have had a very significant effect on the fate of Athens. It's probably an apocryphal story, but when the city was overrun by the Spartans ten years later, it is said that their decision to save the city from a thorough sacking and physical destruction only came about when they heard a passage from the play about Electra's despair for her homelessness. Moved by the poetry to pity, they spared the city and the people. I hope it's true. It would be nice to think that even heroes like Electra and Orestes, that are not nearly heroic enough, can, by the power of language, still have an impact. Next time, we'll look at Euripides' last play. It's a very different sort of play from Electra or Medea, where the tendency for realism and melodrama are gone and tragedy is back, but in a mystical and fantastical form. Nothing that has gone before will prepare you for the strange world of Dionysian excess and the Bacchae. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns, in the meantime you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Music